0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of
1: Michigan faculty.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Michigan Minds. Can you please introduce yourself to me and our audience and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan?
1: My name is Larry Gant. And I have been faculty with the University of Michigan School of Social Work um, since the early 1980s. Somewhat later, um, in, as a result of community work that I was doing um, with a colleague in the Penny W. Stamp School of Art and Design, um, I was later invited to serve as a um, professor by permission at the Penny W. Stamp School of Art and Design, and so that came somewhat later on in my tenure. My role at the University of Michigan is basically those two professorships, as well as being the current director of the School of Social Work Office for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, and then I think I'm I'm very excited to be in that role. Um, The role allows me to really kind of bring to the School of Social Work, a lot of the experiences, theories, practices that I engaged with um, in doing more formal community work in the communities of Southeast Michigan, most notably Detroit. It's very interesting because as I share in my more recent classes with students, The School of Social Work at the University of Michigan, they're all communities just at different kinds of scopes and scales and definitions. And so some of the basic engagement approaches, thinking approaches that we we train um, our students to use in the communities work really well um, for the local community here at the School of Social Work and surrounded by the somewhat larger community of the University of Michigan.
0: That's so many different areas of work, and it sounds like some really incredible community engagement aspects, so I'm really excited to talk to you more about those pieces, but I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the areas in which your research focuses.
1: The research has really focused on um, a couple of broad areas. Um, I would say that the research focuses on really to address and respond to various kinds of health disparities and educational disparities and sector disparities that impact um, neighborhoods at the local level. Um, I got involved in doing this um, for the first 20 years of, of research and work with the kind of co-epidemics of crack cocaine that impacted um, many in urban neighborhoods. Detroit was um, not immune from that, but also HIV AIDS as well. And so we had two co-occurring kind of pandemics, drug use as well as HIV. And I found myself being asked to provide various kinds of workshops, trainings, anything to provide education at that time to children who were kind of caught up in the middle of HIV AIDS and the the drug overdose activity. At that time, the only interventions that were reportedly useful were interventions that were developed on the West Coast, um, Washington State, Oregon, and Northern California, uh, to some degree, um, all of California. And these were HIV prevention strategies and approaches that um, targeted injection drug users, as well as, at that time, um, sexual minorities. The only problem was that they were really tailored for their own audiences, and so when I asked for various kinds of curricula that we could use at the grade school level, they said, well, we don't really have anything for that, but if you want to teach the kids about syringe exchange and about safe sex in the LGBTQ um, neighborhoods, we can provide that to you not quite the same, but um, we we're able, doing some thoughtful work to kind of modify and take the curriculum that was there, but really to you know, start to tailor it and fine tune that to the current, to those needs and issues that were impacting children, families, adults, communities uh, in the neighborhoods in Detroit. So after about 20, 20, about 20 or so years of working with some really good colleagues, we got a good handle on that. And so that sparked. Um, the involvement and interest in using art as a way to, um, as a a mode of community development and community organizing came kind of naturally, where we found that having really difficult discussions about community change, about sex, about drugs, transactions, things like that, um, kind of hard to do in some neighborhood settings, in some neighborhood form. But when we incorporated various kinds of art, and music and music presentations, along with physicians who would say, this is not really difficult, ask me questions, we can respond to that. We found that was helpful. And I also found that um, not, you know, not, my, not my unique discovery, but I found in you know, consistent with other people who are also using art to engage audiences that art provided a different kind of a, of a bridge to talk about sensitive issues, delicate issues um, in a way That was more open-ended that you know um generated a space where people could have a discussion ask questions and talk about very very sensitive issues in a somewhat more relaxed way a thoughtful way in a way where people could express well i'm not really an expert i do have some questions and comments what do you think about that and so very briefly the, the use of art um which was, I think, a really good idea, and since there's so many communities in Detroit that have an art history, a music history at base, it was really, really quite natural that those kind of clicked together. And so um, I began to use that. Moving past that, I decided to really think about and talk with colleagues who were saying who were saying and using art in a variety of ways for community development and and, and change. I'm not an artist by by training. I had some piano lessons for a couple of decades when I was growing up, but I was not a trained artist, but I knew the language of art. And so I could communicate with professionals, with um, artists, um, with people in the communities, and kind of fill that engagement bridge between artists, creators, social scientists, physicians, teachers, um, and families. And so I've I've continued to do that even to this day.
0: It's so inspiring how you not only found all of these innovative ways to engage with different community members, but also letting them be a part of the conversation and not just being a response to a question and really bringing that in and, you know, elevating that community, the importance of communities identifying their own concerns and not just being talked at. Um, can you elaborate on how programs like this can impact neighborhoods just based on your experience when you go out and you engage with a community like this? How how does that impact change or how can that impact change? Uh,
1: you know, I, I think that that begins to be really complicated, but I can summarize it pretty briefly. Um, I use a kind of model of just practice that a colleague of ours, a colleague of mine, Janet Finn, put together about 20 or 25 years ago. And there's an acronym that's not, you can't really pronounce it, but it's basically looking at context, history, meaning, power, and possibility. And so, you know, those I have really used as a bedrock of my approach to community engagement um to come in if i come in to be invited in as as a guest so it's never with my background and my pedigrees as faculty at university of michigan but it's to be invited as a guest to see if i can be a service to an issue in in the, in the community so i don't go any place where i'm not invited so that also means that i've got to have some that's there's got to be someone in the neighborhood who will say hey heard about your information we heard about you know what you've done in other places could you come talk with us and so my my approach would be well yes i'd rather listen and then find out how i can be of service so understanding a bit about the history of the neighborhood and the community before one goes in is, is really very important the context is also important what else is going on in that neighborhood in that area um what has gone on historically and what's gone on currently meaning why does it make sense for us to engage in the moment here and now? Well, with age and HIV, you had kids sometimes falling over in some of the neighborhoods in Detroit, syringes on the street, um, seeing transactions uh, take place on corners and them going home to parents and saying, well, what's going on? I saw this, I saw that, you know, kind of pick that up. No, you, you can't do that. Um, and the other context was certainly people were dying and people were acquiring this disease for which there was no cure at that time, right? And so the context is what's the urgency? What does it mean um, to be able to provide the resources here and now? Well, we might have an opportunity to kind of address the issue while the issue is still in incubation stages, small stages before it gets worse. Before it gets kind of out of control, so it's basically a situation. Well, well, do we can we innovate? Do we con, do we um, facilitate? Do we contain? Um, what's our role in this space in this time? Um, context, history, meaning, power, and possibility. Power and possibility are always huge challenges. Um, a lot of people in the neighborhoods where I work have a different sense of power, may not have any kind of power at all. And so how do you facilitate that? How do you get them to realize that there can be power in art, power in organizing, power in providing a united front? And then what are the possibilities? What happens after that?
0: So as the program director at the School of Social Work's Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, one of the roles you mentioned in your intro, can you tell us about the work that the organization does as a catalyst and support system for students, staff, and faculty?
1: Diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, I mean, I've been involved in some kind of way with each one of those areas um, since I began work in the communities in Detroit and on the West Coast in in Europe as well, too. So i I'm try. I tried to think when the opportunity came up. I tried to think of a situation in which I had never not been engaged and immersed in identifying what diversity was, equity was, and inclusion. And I haven't been. I mean, I, I've been struggling with those, with those, with those concepts and trying to integrate that in the real world for for a lot of years. And so it becomes very, very natural um, with this. It's complicated work, but I would say that um, what we try to do um, for students, staff, and faculty is to really um, do a couple of things. Students, staff, and faculty don't understand often the history of how the University of Michigan and how the School of Social Work came to this moment where there is an an, an emphasis and an essential importance on understanding the impact and implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion, not only in our communication with organizations outside the the university and outside the school, but also within. It really became really interesting that the work that we would do in the communities, um, we could do with students if they were concerned, if they were upset. But we kind of had a different definition about that, that the only people that had need were people outside the community. And that if you were in the School of Social Work, if you were here at University of Michigan, you were pretty much doing okay as a student, as a staff, as a faculty. Students had education, they had good instructors who cared about them, internships, staff had jobs, faculty had jobs and and career tracks as well too. So all was well. Well, of course that wasn't the case. Um, and so once you begin to get in, you will find power dynamics, conflicts, harassment, lack of information, incomplete facilitation um, of, of resources, students sometimes having needs saying, can the school, can the university help me with these needs about transportation? I'm a working parent with children. Can, can I get help in some kind of way? What about financial aid? Um, What if I had to take a leave? And what was really interesting was that um, in various kinds of ways, we really had to reframe the responses that we would provide to students um, and to staff and to faculty as well. So the thought was, well, before we talk about in very impassioned tones, the importance of work in the outside communities, outside neighborhoods, we should also do the same thing with the more local community of the University of Michigan, but also with the um, you know various units within the University of Michigan. We're decentralized, and that's both good news and challenging news. So we took that, and I think as a School of Social Work, we have a special kind of commitment to really look at and analyze how we engage and how we work with and how we provide for our students, staff, and faculty from a human-centered perspective. From a from a center, from a from a resource that really values the individual and the family, and that tries to provide ideas and capacities and opportunities for growth and development, um, as well as safety when safety is called for.
0: How does your work and research at U of M um, contribute to the work that you do with the Detroit Urban Research Center?
1: That was a real joy. Um, The Detroit Urban Research Center grew out of about 16, almost 16 years of work that we did in partnership with the Skillman Foundation and the Good Neighborhoods Initiative. So we worked in partnership with the Skillman Foundation who provided the um, opportunity to do work in six communities, six neighborhoods in the city of Detroit that had lots of children, not a whole lot of resources, and lots of need. Okay, And so they asked us, we had had former contacts with the, with the president of the Schumann Foundation, who was an alum of the School of Social Work at University of Michigan. And so she reached out to the um, then dean, Paula Allen Mears, to ask whether or not there was something that the School of Social Work could do to really change the odds for children in these six neighborhoods. Um, we spent 16 years, which is an eternity if you're working with a foundation. Usually foundations provide resources and be kind of done within three to five years, and, and, and that's about it. Um, the work that we really did intensively and understanding, um, functioning and operating in these six neighborhoods in Detroit, um, was really, you know, catalytic. It compelled us, for example, to move to the then called um, U of M Detroit Center, um, where we were not seen as being bona fide allies with the neighborhoods in Detroit. If we didn't have a Detroit base of operations, we couldn't just kind of continue to commute from Ann Arbor to Detroit. That was that was problematic, and so you know we were able to facilitate that um Installation of resources of faculty and staff and students. Um, we were also able to leverage some additional funding um, from another federal government grant um, with a, co- a colleague and, and current colleague, Lorraine um, Gutierrez, who is the ADEP, the Associate Dean for Educational Programs at the School of Social Work. And so we actually were able to kind of leverage diff- additional resources to engage in very heavy duty work. Um, with these six neighborhoods. Um, we wrote books on that, chapters on that, and we spent a lot of our really good lives for about 12 years, really engaged and really immersed um, in understanding and working with um, neighborhood residents, as stakeholders and institutions. And so that has really continued to um, go forward even to the current day, all right? So the Urban Research Center is, we're very, very close allies with the Urban Research Center. If we do do anything differently, slightly differently, we've always continued to try to look at research and how that can actually inform practice, um, programs and services. So we have really um, been very, very enthusiastic about finding out what is in the literature that can impact services, but also, um, in the reports and the articles and the books that we put together how the successes of these neighborhoods can also inform future work and future policy going forward. So it's been um, reciprocal. Uh, as the um, the Urban Research Center has continued, there's no stop. I mean, there's just an urgency to continue to engage and work in various, with various kinds of communities in a number of ways so that organization and that work continues to be essential and We continue to enjoy really good collaborations with them.
0: As faculty at the School of Social Work, you're working to leverage the school's art collection as a teaching tool to restructure vacated library space into dynamic creative work environments. Can you expand on this and talk about that project's objectives a little bit?
1: Sure. During the time when we moved out of the um, late Lamented Freeze building into our new building, our own building as a School of Social Work, the dean at that time who really accelerated um, the fund development and the movement and um, the the endowments uh, was Paula Allen Mears. Dean Allen Mears was really clear about the need to really incorporate within the school a third kind of curriculum. Um, We would have the teachers, we would have the field, but she was also really um, concerned and really interested in the role of art um, within social work. And so for her and for myself, but for for her at at that time, she really believed in the power of art to communicate, to present um, and, and to amplify you know, the issues which were at that time, families, work, and community. And so she worked with a really um, experienced staff of art, researchers, consultants, and well-trained, very familiar faculty and staff and and community residents to put together a kind of a collection of art. So she was able to get um, substantial endowments for this. And so the collection, which breaks down into about a third of the collection is about families, about another third is diversity, and another third is maybe community systems. And they were sprinkled all throughout the walls of our our, our current social work building. What was absent with that, because I think people got tired and and life moves on, was that the art was there, but there wasn't a curriculum which explained how to use the art. And so at some point, it actually took a colleague of mine, um, Nick Tobie, from the Stamp School of Art and Design to meet with me at the office. I had just come back from sabbatical then, and I was just kind of getting used to, it. we had these pictures around. And so he was actually late for our meeting. I wondered where he was. And when I opened the door, you know, he, he knocked and he just said, do you realize what you have on the walls here? this is magnificent. And I said, I, th- I thought they were just pictures. It's embarrassing to say now, but I did. And so he took me on a walkthrough of the creative and vast collection that we actually had here. And I just said, I'm embarrassed because you took a stranger to talk about this magnificent, powerful art collection that we had here. What else have I been missing, basically? And so, um, I, I and so I followed through with that, and you know, found that there were bits and pieces of a curriculum, or a, a, a different curriculum here and there. And so, with a small group of um, colleagues, faculty, and staff, and a few students, we started to um, put together tours. We just got to we kind of cobbled together pieces, you know, of, of stories of the artists, and we kind of moved forward with that. I also found a way to engage with some, at that time, some wonderful staff at UMA, um, University Museum of of Modern Art, and explain to to them that we had this really interesting opportunity. We had a wonderful collection that no one knew about that was very powerful, and we didn't know how to really handle the art collection as a tool of pedagogy in the school's decoration. Could they help us with that? And so they provided some really, really critical guidance. Um, it led us then to develop some simple curricula um, for the collection. Now, a little thing called COVID, you know, kind of stopped the work in, in, for several years. As we return to that, we're really looking on integrating that art collection actively into the curriculum of the school of social work and so that's uh, some of the current work that we are on, that we're engaged in right now. And having that be part of the you know call for diversity equity inclusion and inclusion is just spot on there. So we've had it um, and we're working hard to really actively engage that we've done tours, of course, of the collection during homecoming events and things like that. Um, but we are really looking forward to actually being able to engage curricula, faculty, staff, and students in the actual art collection as as it goes forward.
0: That's amazing. As the podcast comes to a close, I just wanted to ask if there's anything else that you want to share that we didn't talk about.
1: You know where do we, where do we begin basically? <laughs> uh, I, but but I, I, I do think that what we found is is that, It's been very, very catalytic and powerful um, to engage with the school around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. as as you may know, we are currently at a point now where we've had a few years of DEI activities at the University of Michigan. And now we've entered a kind of a two-year reflection period. What worked, what didn't work, where do we go from here? And so we are right in the middle of this um, two year reflection period because the university will engage in two years in DEI 2.0 and the expectation is that while the first iteration of DEI was very exploratory getting some information um, kind of counting things if as, as 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 it were the expectation is that DEI 2.0 now needs to address some of the structural factors and other opportunities that we cannot take a look at. So instead of doing an assessment and observation of, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this, which 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 was important. Now 2.0 would say, we'd like to change this. We'd like to integrate this. We'd like to do something different, okay? And so the expectation is that we take and move to another level of integration of program development and program stability Um, and also a challenge as that that may happen within DEI 2.0. So that's what we're looking forward to doing. We've got this first year of 2022, that's kind of a reflection period, and we are supposed to be able to engage in DEI DEI 2.0 at the end of 2023, beginning of 2024.
0: Thank you for adding that. And thank you so much for your time, Dr. Gant. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much from you and have been so inspired by the work that you do. So thank you.
1: I appreciate the opportunity to to respond and also Grayfield's facilitation skills. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media
1: with hashtag UMichImpact.